I meant to put this slide up here a second ago, but I forgot the little clicker, so uh, we'll come back to it in a moment. But it's good to see everyone out, and maybe it's your first time here this year, maybe it's your first time here ever, or it's not. But if you're not familiar, we've been having our theme this year of being holy as God is holy, for I'm holy. And in this particular quarter here in these last few months, we've been talking about being holy when we are weak. And being holy in the weaknesses in which we have, which are common to mankind, but yet still finding a way to be separated to God, to be dedicated to God, and really focusing on how we're able to do that in those times. We're going to talk about that again this morning. I'll draw your attention back to the psalm that, that Bill just read for us. That's a psalm that is inscribed of David. If you're looking at it directly in your, in your text there, You would have right below chapter 26, you would have in all capital letters, you would have the phrase of David. And when you see those all capital letters at the Psalms, that means that we have record of who wrote that psalm. And so we know clearly who is the author of this psalm, and the author of this psalm is David. And you notice his tone in this psalm as he's asking for vindication from God as he's asking for God to declare him right, he goes through and he talks about how he's trusted in the Lord without wavering. And how he has put his heart and his mind to God's work. And you can test me, God, and you find out that that's the way I've lived my life. And there are all these evil people out there, I don't hang out with them. And there are all those liars and hypocrites, I don't associate with him. I am at your altar, and my hands are clean, and you know that. That's not the tune of Psalm 51. I want you to turn to Psalm 51. It is also a psalm that we have all capital letters that is inscribed to David. But notice the time in which this psalm was written. Psalm 51, I'm going to read those little small capital letters above, right below 51. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. He writes this psalm after he has committed adultery and after he has committed murder. And this morning we are going to look at a time when David was not as strong anymore. He couldn't tell the Lord, vindicate me because I am so good and I am so righteous. We're going to see this morning in Psalm 51, we're going to see his main theme of what he's asking for in the first two verses. Then we're going to see the realization that he has sin and what he understands about his sin in the next few verses. Then we're going to see the request that he has for himself. Because of this sin that I have in my life, I need you to do something for me, God. And when you do that, God, I'll pledge that this is how I will respond to you and for you. And finally, he's going to make one final request for other people. And we're going to see that this morning, that in this psalm, a psalm that maybe is very familiar to us, it is of a completely different tone than Psalm 26. It is a man who, as we see the theme, I want you to read verses 1 and 2 with me. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He can't be vindicated because he's done right. He needs God's mercy. He recognizes that his sins are there and they need to be taken away. He can't say, God, look at me. You know I'm innocent. He is guilty as can be. He's been caught, we would say, red-handed. Ever thought about why we use the phrase being caught red-handed? You murdered someone, and guess what's on your hands? The blood is on your hands. You're caught red-handed. David says, what I need from you is mercy. How many of us can relate to a situation in life where there is no getting around it? We were wrong. We don't go to God and try to make excuses for it. I need your mercy. That's what this whole psalm is about. Notice how as we go now into the realization that he has of this sin in which he's committed, we're going to see really the seriousness of it. We're going to read verses 3 through 6 as we think about what he understands and what he realizes about his sin. He said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret places or in the secret heart. You know, one of the things that he realizes right up front is that he knows he's done wrong. But that sin was always before him. You ever done something so egregious and so bad you couldn't stop thinking about it? Where it's just, we use the phrase, it's eating you up. It's all that is before you. And you'll remember back in Psalm 26, I believe it was verse 3, where he says, your steadfastness or your loving kindness is always before me. Here, what's always before him is how wrong he is. And maybe there have been things, as we pointed out, in your life that are that way. I've got a few of those days in my life. One of those being April the 19th, 2007. And I'll tell you what happened on April 19, 2008, my sin was ever before me. It really bothered me that day. April 19, 2009, it still bothered me, but it wasn't as bad. April 19, 2010, I'm starting to feel where it's not always before me. Fast forward to April 19, 2016, I didn't even think about it. Because it takes time. Because these things that are so bad and these things that are so huge in our life, it takes time to get them away. And David is asking for that to be taken away from him. That he no longer has to look at it. 
that he no longer has to think about it, but that God would remove it from him. And I think you and I understand that. Help me forget this. But he also recognized that not only was it before him and had he done wrong, is that, man, you know what? As bad as I killed Uriah, and as inappropriately as I treated Bathsheba, the only person that really committed sin against is you. I've hurt you. I've left you. And man, it gets to be a little more serious when we realize the person that we've wronged is the person that is completely perfect. You know, it's interesting when we think about Uriah, we often think about Uriah as this terrific guy. He was noble, right? David said, hey, come back from the war, get drunk, sleep with your wife, have a baby. And he said, no, not why my soldiers or my brothers are out there. I won't do that. He's up on the porch. What if that was the one shining moment in Uriah's life? Because guess what? We know that this isn't the only moment of David's life. And we don't sum up David's life by this moment. We say that was a turning point. I'm not here to say Uriah was a bad guy in any way. I'm here to say we don't know. But what we do know is that David had this great moment and he sinned against God. It was against him, and he needed God to take care of that. But he noticed also there in verse 4 that his sin was deserving of judgment. Remember when Nathan came and he told him that story that opened his eyes that he had done sin? Remember he told that story about that man, that poor man who had that one little lamb, and he treated it like his daughter. And then that rich man, he had all these lambs, and he had a visitor come into town. And he didn't want to kill one of his own lambs. And so he's like, I'll take my neighbor's poor little baby lamb. He takes that lamb. And he kills him. Remember David's response? That man needs to die. David said, Nathan said, you're the man. His tone didn't change when he realized it was him. His tone stayed the same. That man deserves to die. But oftentimes when we catch ourselves in sin, we change our tone. We aren't quite as harsh on me as we are on others. And David said, you were just in putting me to death. Remember what David said, the Lord has put your sin away. He's not going to kill you for it. Man, oh man. You've been let off the hook. But yet you still know you've done wrong. You're still hurt. And so verse 5, what he realizes about this sin, and this is a verse that has been said in a lot of different ways, that in sin I was brought forth, meaning people take that to believe that he was brought into the world and he was a sinner. Well, what I think he's saying is that my sin is deep-rooted. It goes all the way back to my human tendencies. It goes back to my childhood in one sense. And when you think of your weaknesses, when did they kick in, most of them? Most of them kicked in at a pretty young age. Most alcoholics start having trouble not when they turn 21 in the legal age of drinking, but teenagers, sometimes even before. Sex addicts don't turn into sex addicts usually as adults, but in their childhood. Our problems that we have are often deep-rooted. And he 
says that's the way it was. And in mother my sin, or my mother in sin conceived me. People take that and say, man, his mother had him out of wedlock. Well, if you looked at Psalm 86, you would see that he calls his mother a maidservant of the Lord. She seemed to be a good woman. And what I think he's just saying is that, man, it goes all the way back. It's deeper. So often we don't want to get to the root of the problem, do we? We like to treat the symptom of the problem. But when we go to the doctor, we don't want a doctor that treats the symptoms, do we? We want a doctor that understands the symptoms and says, now here's the real problem. And David said, mine was deep in there. This has been in me. This is not a one-time thing. This is a major issue of which I have. And then in verse 6, he said, man, what I did wasn't pleasing to you. What I gave you wasn't what you wanted. Because what you wanted was you wanted me to be true in my inner parts. And it's interesting that word true is probably better, could be translated faithful. You wanted me to be true to you in my heart. But yet I wondered in my heart. Yet I erred in my heart and I didn't give that to you. That's the problem. Isn't that what Jesus says? Out of the heart comes all kinds of wickedness. Murder, deceit, lying, evil thoughts. You go on with the list. He said, God, that's where I messed up. When we have those weak moments, we have to realize it's deep. It's not just some symptom. There is an actual problem right here in my heart. And that gets us to his request that deals oftentimes with his heart. So it's verse 7 through verse 12 as he makes these requests to God. He said, purge me or purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know this, this phrase that he begins with in verse 7, this purge me, this purify me with hyssop. That is what the priests did once a leper came to them and they were already clean. They had already been cured of their leprosy but yet a sacrifice still had to be given to make them ceremonially clean. And that would be in Leviticus chapter 14 is where you would find that. And what David, I believe, is saying here is God had forgiven him of his sin. Nathan told him that. But what he's asking God to do is make me clean to everyone else out there. Let everyone else know that I am clean. That you have purified me. Wash me and it's like a garment and I'll be white as snow. I've got all this blood on me, but God, wash me, make me clean so that when I stand before my people, your people, let them know that you've accepted me. And isn't that kind of what we want? Not only do we want God to forgive us, we want people to accept us that our repentance is for real. 
And we want people to take us back and kind of restore us back to the spot we were before. If you were a leper and you got your leprosy, right? And you come back and you say, man, I'm all clean. And everyone says, stay away from me, you had leprosy. What does that do to your... Man, it makes you... Why be around those people? It breaks your heart again, all over again. He's saying, make me clean in front of these people. What is verse 8? Let me hear joy and gladness. And the idea is make me to hear the joy and the gladness. And let my bones rejoice. Remember that weak moment that you had when everything was low and everything was bad? How much of the radio did you turn on? I remember back to April 9th. April 20th, for that matter, of 2007, I didn't listen to any music that day. There was nothing that was going to cheer me up that day. You couldn't play any song. I didn't watch any TV. I didn't do any of that. And you've had that feeling, I'm sure, when you've done something so bad that you just like, can you just turn that off? But then you want later on, can I be glad again? Can I get restored back to some kind of normalcy where I can enjoy life? Because right now I'm just miserable. He said, make me hear joy and gladness again. And verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Don't look at it anymore. Don't do it. Haven't we done that? (laughs) We've done something so bad, he said, just don't look at it. I can't look at you right now. Because we understand that separation. We understand that difference. And we don't feel worthy to be looked upon. And he said, don't look at my sins anymore. Forget those things. Blot them out. I found this word interesting. That it could be obliterate. And when you obliterate something, I get a cartoon kind of image in my head. You punch it or you hit it with a hammer, right? So let's say there's something and you hit it with a hammer. You obliterate it, it blows up into dust. And it vanishes. And maybe that's one of the ways that he's saying it here, is make my sin vanish. That way you can't look at it. Take it away completely because we don't want to see it anymore. And we sure don't want you to see it anymore. God, don't look at it. But remember he said it all was deep. It was in his inner being. So in verse 10 he said, Create in me a clean, a pure heart. He said, man, I need my heart redone. And only you can create that. This word create is a word that's only used of God. You have to do that in me, God. You have to do that. I can't do that on my own. I may want to do that on my own, but God, You're the only one who can. And so God, create that in me. Give me purity inside and renew. What's it mean to renew? Refresh. Start it back over. Give me, and notice what He wants renewed, a right spirit. Well, again, that's one of our words that's translated a little differently. could be directed Arrive, meaning that it's headed in the right way. But here's another word that might give us a little more indication. What about a steadfast heart? 
It seems to be it could be used that way. What did he say he had done? He had walked away in all these things. He had erred in his heart. He didn't have a, back in verse, oh, verse 6, he didn't have truth. He didn't have faithfulness in the inner. But he says, now you renew in me a steadfast spirit. A spirit in which I will hold to you, in which I will cling to you. Renew that in me. Because didn't he have it at one time? Psalm 26, you look at me. You know I've walked in my integrity. Give that back to me, he's saying to God. So then 11, but cast me not away from your presence. God, don't throw me out of the house. Maybe some of our sins that were so egregious, mom and dad threatened to throw us out. And we begged, don't throw me out. Because if they throw us out of the house, what do we have? Where do we go? I got nowhere. I got no one. And David recognizes that. He recognizes that if God throws him out, he's done. He's toast. Don't throw me out, God. And don't take away your Holy Spirit. Remember how many Psalms David wrote prior to this incident? And how many prophecies David gave prior to this incident. Imagine if all that was just taken away. Where he could no longer be useful. Where God would no longer use him in that way. Man, wouldn't that be such a terrible thing to happen? But David would understand that. But maybe also just means, man, don't take your presence, what you have given me, to show that you're with me away. God, give me, let me hold on to it. But notice verse 12, kind of in contrast. Don't throw me away, don't cast me away, don't take away your Holy Spirit, but restore to me or bring back to me the joy of your salvation. Let me have it, God. I want that joy back. I want it. And uphold me. Give me strength. Hold me in this time with a willing spirit. And this word willing spirit, a noble spirit, a true spirit maybe. I don't know exactly what it is. But a spirit in which he's giving everything he's got to God. In which his new heart is pure. In which his ways are directed towards God. And in which he is clean. God, make me stand. Because he can't stand on his own. And don't we know that one? And so he says, if you do all of that, God, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he understands that it is not a quid pro quo. But he understands that, God, if you show me your mercy, this is all I can do. This is all that is right. This is all that is fitting to do. And I will give you what you deserve. So what is that? Verses 13 through 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. 
Man, if you do it, I'll tell everybody else that has done wrong how great you are. How willing you are to forgive them. How merciful you will be to them. And notice the response. And they will be converted. How many of us have felt this way, and maybe because of this song, or maybe because of another psalm in which David wrote, he said, you know what? God will show me mercy. You know what? It is worth coming back. David said, that's what I'll do. I will teach the people. I'll sing aloud of your righteousness, just as he had done, as we saw back in Psalm 26. I'll go back to doing the same things about talking about how great you are and being so thankful for the things in which you've done. I will give that to you if you'll just deliver me from this blood guiltiness. Just take it off my hands. Make me clean. I will do that. And I'll declare your praise. I'll tell everyone again about you. But notice verse 16. I'll give you what pleases you, what is a delight. You know what David had probably already offered? A sacrifice. He had gone for the sin offering. He had given the ox or the bull in which was to be given for that. I wonder if he gave even more. If you give all of these things, these burnt offerings, I'm giving my whole self to you. But he understood that wasn't enough. He understood that going and giving an animal wasn't all that God wanted. But what God really wanted was He wanted His heart broken. He wanted His spirit broken. He wanted that broken and that contrite heart. A person who was sorry for his sins. A person that had been crushed by the great sin in which he committed. And if a person doesn't feel that great, I hate to say being broken. And we label that as being rock bottom, don't we? They hit rock bottom. They were completely broken. There was nothing left in them. Until a person gets to there, until a person gets that, their heart is not what God wants and so they can say all the right things. They can do all the right things, but they haven't given it all. They haven't given God that true penitent heart. And He says, I'm broken. That you know. You can search it back in Psalm 26 and understand my integrity. Psalm 26, you can search my heart and you would know I am heartbroken over this. I am in shambles because of my sin against you. Please restore me back. And we worry about ourselves all the time. But when we do really egregious things, guess what it also does? It affects other people. And you see that as he closes out this psalm in the final two verses, that he's got a request for the people of God. Because as king, as their spiritual leader, he has given the enemies all kinds of ammunition. He has weakened his nation. He has weakened his people because our great king who we thought was a man after your own heart and who we thought was so good has done this great sin. What does that mean about it all? Or are you going to bring these enemies into our land and take over our land? And 
David was concerned for his people. And so in verse 18 he said, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. And build up the walls of Jerusalem. Rebuild them. They're broken too. God, build them up and protect them. Do good to these people. They haven't done wrong. They haven't been the one to sin against you. I was the one who did this. And you remember in that battle in which Uriah was killed? Was Uriah the only one that, that suffered? That lost his life that day? There were other men. That's on David. Help them. Rebuild them. Do good to them. And then they will give you the things that you delight. They'll give you those burnt offerings. They'll give you all those sacrifices. And you'll be pleased. But God, just be good to them. And isn't that the way we feel for our family or our church when we mess up real bad? Don't take it out on them. Make them stronger. It's on me. And as we close out this morning, you know, the truth is, when I'm not as strong as I used to be, and I know it, what I need is I need God's mercy and His forgiveness. That's just all there is to it. And even after I get that, I still need to understand how wrong I was. And how problematic and how deeply rooted My sin is. It's in there and it needs to be taken out. And that we need God to put us back together. As old Humpty Dumpty fell, right? No one could put him back together. Thankfully, God can recreate that pure heart and restore that joy. He can put us back together again. And when He does, we got to give Him what pleases Him. The sacrifices, the praise. Look what God has done for me, but still that penitent heart of I'm not going back to that. I'm giving you what you want. And finally, we need God to protect those that we've hurt around us. Man, when we're weak, that's what we need. We need God to do it for us, to be strong for us. This morning I've been a lesson about becoming a Christian. But maybe you know what you need to do and you're ready to do that. Or maybe you need the prayers of the congregation here to help you be strong or whatever the case may be. We'd ask that you would come now as we stand and as we sing.